So we will go ahead and start this just like we do every time. However, hey, we do have. Hey, I'm, a, I'm literally. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to keep that intro. <laughs> you dead? Uh, maybe yeah, we don't have a guest today. Died. I don't know. This is Beers with Hallows. Threats, Beers, and Welcome or welcome back to Beers with Talos. This is episode 21, recorded January 19th, 2018. We've got a full show today, so let's get right to it. We're going to meet Edmund from the Talos team. We're going to talk Group 123 and Attribution in South Korea. We're going to look at some of the most unique hand patching we've ever seen in Equation Editor, as well as identifying the cream of the crop in your security org and threat modeling and why people suck at it. It's going to be a full show, so stick around. All right, let's get things started like we do every week. We're going to go around the table. However, this week we do have a guest with us, Edmund, from our team, from the outreach group, and we'll get to him in just a minute. So if you guys want to hold on. Incredibly last. Craig will go last? <laughs> Does, I mean, do well, guests do, get a seat at the round table, or do they sit, like, uncomfortably on the wall waiting for us to finish our round They're table? They're like at the child's table during Thanksgiving. Yeah. Well, that depends. Is it, is it Dr. Adam O'Donnell, or is it somebody else? <laughs> Yeah, at, well, I tell you what, Doctor Adam J O'Donnell sits at the head of the round table. <laughs> Correct. Oh yeah, that's who built the table. Which side? Which side is the head of the round table? I think it's obvious what the head of the round table is. Okay, wherever he's sitting, that's <laughs> where the head is. I got it. That is how the head is defined. So let's go ahead and get started with the round table. We have done a random sort, and Joel, you're up first today. All right, all right. I got two things. Uh, first of all, I would like to check in with Craig about has he hooked up his Alexa to his Furbo, and can his kids kill him yet with the doggy? Why would toy? I weaponize the Furbo? It's already bad enough. This was clearly Alexa. assigned to you as an action item from the last podcast. <laughs> I, I know it was. I, we talked about. I made this. the executive decision to not do that. <laughs> yeah, but we wanted you to. When did you start making yes. good decisions? What at what point did this start happening? I don't know. It was a weird thing. I was just like, hmm, Alexa, should I allow it to, to have my children throw pieces of dog food out on the floor? No. All right. Doesn't sound so like let's you. just fix this right now. Alexa, throw a treat. No, no, no. It's even better than that, Joel. It's, it's Alexa, have Furbo throw a dog treat every 30 seconds for the next eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> it will actually take that command. I looked this up. Oh, nice. <laughs> and all of our listeners are now pissed at us, oh. at least the ones that are <laughs> The ones with Furbo and Alexa. The, the, no, so the second thing I wanted to bitch about was um, time zones and why Craig thinks that the central time zone matters. Oh. Is that... Well, clearly it doesn't. So let's start with that. Right. Yeah. I I hate time zones. It's just, I think, I don't know if anybody else hates them as much as, my, as I How do. How you hate time zones, Joe? But I just... I hate time Joel zones. Joel hates I a think little we bit should of everything. Abolish them. I think we should abolish just, time zones. Just all time zones. Um, <laughs> what about the concept? All time, of time zones. And so, no, no, not the concept of time. I think that I think that we should start with GMT should be the established time zone, and everybody around the world adjusts their time to be on yeah, GMT. Do, hold on. So, like, we on. wouldn't wake up at nine a.m. Right? We would wake up at, or we wouldn't start working at nine a.m. We would start working at. You know, thirteen hundred. Yeah, hold GMT. on there. That's when we would hold start. On, we still leader. measure shit in pounds, inches, and feet, and you want to get America <laughs> to all use England time? I want the Good whole luck. world to do it. This is my platform. Yeah, the never, entire world. Not a, not a chance in hell. In, when listen. I run for president, this is going to be my platform. No, listen. <laughs> the entire world already uses GMT. Time zones right. are an offset but, from GMT, so let's just get that clear. We shouldn't offset, is okay. my point. You That's just want to get rid we should not of offset. that offset. Correct. How would you coordinate anything with the people who lived in other areas? Same way you do well, now. You wouldn't have to. You would just say, this is the time. Oh. And then at, at when it's when it's 1300... Oh, wait, so now world, we're doing Zulu. That's when you have so the meeting. So you still have to have a time zone because you'd have to know if you have to go to work at 1500 or at 1600. No. No, we don't. You know what time you need to be there based upon where you live. <laughs> Which would be a time zone. So it would just be one like, common like, time. You just get up at like midnight and then work to like, you know, yeah. whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't right. Right. Boo, so if I got up boo. at midnight, what would the people on the West Coast get up at? Who cares? <laughs> whatever time would be applicable to them, but it would be one common time. You wouldn't have nine o'clock here or nine o'clock there. That's bullshit. Right. Well, you see, what would happen 
is that people in England would get to work at 9 a.m., right? And then on the east coast of the United States, people would get to work at uh, 1,400, right? Or 1,400. So 2 o'clock in the afternoon would be the start. Right. And then, although it would still look like 9 o'clock because it would, you know, be the same time of right. day. Um, and then so West Coast at would actually start at 5 Everybody in the, the whole afternoon. world knows what time it I'll is. I'll tell you, hey, you it's know what, 1400. Joel? This is a stupid <laughs> idea. <laughs> I'll second that motion. I liked it better when you were yelling at Craig about using central time zone to direct his people in Florida. Yeah. And not, yeah, and not defining what time zone he was talking about. So tell me, nope. what, what time is 10 a.m. Central? Nobody cares. 10 a.m. Central. 9 o'clock in the morning. That's why we publish at 10 Central. No. No. 10 Central is 11 a.m. It's 11 a.m. Eastern. Yeah, I was going to say, it's yeah. 11 a.m. That's <laughs> why you don't use Central. That's why Joel hates time zones. He doesn't know how they work. <laughs> right. Hey, Duke, Joel was in mountain time for a minute. Give him a chance. God damn. Craig, you're up. I was going to talk about something uh, constructive, but instead I wanted to talk about Paul's visual choices. Um, yes. I believe Mitch is going to drop a link into the comments section. Um, so p- feel free to take a look at that and chime in. In the, sh- in the show notes. Yeah, in the show notes. So here's the thing. Paul told us today he uses a BlackBerry still, which honestly, I didn't even know that was still a thing. I, I thought BlackBerry was out of business. Um, and you may remember our discussions from Paul from earlier because he has a pretty unique visual taste. Um, what was his Ida Pro screenshot? Was it like pink lime pink. green on black? Pink it's pink. lime green, pink, and maroon or some shit. It was <laughs> yeah. his visual Pretty taste horrendous. is terrible. That's, <laughs> that's the title of his visual taste. And so taste. out of nowhere, uh, Edmund, you know, Edmund's our special guest, asked him, uh, hey, what's your screen? What's your uh, background screen? And so Paul Pace, this like, I, I don't I don't even know how to describe it. It's like attempting to induce a seizure in victims, the type of psychedelic mushroom with dragons flying. It is a... It's exactly what it is, a psychedelic mushroom. That is correct. Yeah. That is, that is some disturbing stuff right there. I mean, it, it looks like a Smurf is on acid. If you, <laughs> It's like Smurfs on acid. That, that yeah. is terrible. And uh, he did a poll. Where, where is this at now? Still at 64% awful, 36% oh, awesome. That's what I just said. 36% of people are currently incorrect. Yeah, I think I, can't, I don't believe that. I think that's he's asking his friends to vote awesome. There's no yeah. way. Thirty-six percent of people are morons. That uh, that background is still a better choice than trying to abolish time zones. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to agree. That's only his bit for the rest of the podcast. Time, Joel's time zone suggestion sucks. Uh, I can't wait for him to come around, like you know, next time with a twenty-minute description of an idea that's terrible, and then just explain how it's so much better than abolishing time zones. <laughs> <laughs> this is my pitch. Do you know what's worse than time zones? The Beastie Boys. Nice. In there, in, in there before we got to it. I appreciate you taking the lead. Yeah, nice. Me out. Nigel, you are up next, sir. Would you like to check on the progress of the Reds? Is that what you want yes. to do? Okay. So, so, to, so to set it up for the listeners last week, Nigel, against all odds, said that the Reds were going to beat the undefeated, league-leading, 62-point holding Manchester City Hadn't been beaten all season, and there was just, you know, there was just no way. So, Nigel, why don't you just admit defeat and tell everybody what happened? Well, the final score was four goals to three. Yeah, four goals to three. In, yeah, it was. In favor of the mighty Reds. Oh! They destroyed, they destroyed Manchester City in the game of the season. <laughs> well, Absolutely <laughs> crushed them. Four to three is that's 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 like a shootout. That's a yeah. pretty high scoring game. Well, that, so well, here's to the be deal. fair, Nigel, City did not score until like the closing minutes of the game. So well, that's it what was all, Nigel all had over. Eighty. So so soccer games are ninety minutes long. If I remember correctly, at eighty minutes, the score was four to one. Correct. So how much clinching did you do between minute eighty and minute ninety? As <laughs> four to right. one, to four to two, to four to three. How nervous were you, my friend? I was fully confident that the mighty Reds would hold on for another glorious victory. Um, but how many games in a row have they won now? Um, it's a few. I would have to go to the record books. It's like six. It's quite I a few, and right, they right. have. Well, because you, you're probably also including the, our magnificent FA Cup third-round victory. I am. I am. Well, yeah. so, you know, taking that into account. So it, what time What time did they score their third goal? Uh, How much like, was left in the it game? It was after, it was the, like, 90 Did minutes it? plus, 
you were into injury time, so it was like three or four minutes. Oh, they scored the third one in stoppage? Yeah. Okay, so you were you were relatively, that wasn't, you know, right. too much of a pucker, I right. guess. They scored okay. at the 84th minute and at 90 plus one. Yeah. Wow. So I, I have one quick update. Um, last week, we talked about, like, the drone in the tree and the, and the wrecked Christmas presents. I did attempt oh, the rescue mission <laughs> with my drone with the little winch on it. And yep. there are now two drones in the tree. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anybody would be surprised by that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you admitted last week on the podcast, I clearly remember this, that you are a terrible drone pilot. Yeah, yeah I am not a very good drone pilot, no. Yep. I have no idea why I even tried that. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. I love it. Was alcohol it's involved? Uh, no, no, not. Well, I mean, when I conceived uh, of mm, it. Well, mm, maybe. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> It was not Especially last night when I was sending you guys pictures of all those whiskey bottles. That was I tried this days before. That was a good evening. It was like. a fantastic evening, yes. Uh Matt, sir. Yo. So uh so podcasts are a weird sort of performance medium. We don't get a lot of you know feedback from listeners or anything. And we we got some this week and I wanted to kind of call it out and, and say how much I appreciated it. Uh last week I made uh, a comparison uh, between the Beastie Boys and Cats, saying they were roughly on the same level. Um, and uh, Twitter user at Tim0x00 or at Tim Null uh, replied by sending me a link to a YouTube video, which was one hour, 37 minutes, and 34 seconds of a Beastie Boys concert. I would like to let Mr. Tim know that I listened to the entire concert. And I am now more informed than ever about Beastie Boys music. I've learned a lot. And I feel that now that I've listened to the concert, I need to issue an apology. Um, so, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, <laughs> I knew that was coming. You know, putting Beastie Boys and Cats in the same category was unfair and probably borderline criminal. And I hope you can find it in your heart to forgive me. Um, Beastie Boys are a blight on our cultural identity and uh, horrible. <laughs> so there you go. They just sound like a good time. That's it. Just take it for what it is. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> so we do have, like I mentioned, a guest on today, Edmund, uh, if you want to say hi. And um, you're here today. We're going to talk a little bit about threat modeling. And we're going to talk with you about that at the end of the show. But you're going to hang here with us and, and kind of comment throughout. So they should probably figure out who you are here at the top. Sure. Well, uh, thanks for having me. My name's Edmund Bremigen. I'm a security researcher here with Talos. So I'm on the Talos outreach team. I've uh, been with Talos for a little bit less than two years now. Um, prior to joining Talos, I spent a good part of the past decade in security operations on various security operations teams, working in SOCs, doing uh, DFIR, um, security architecture, things of that nature across a, a range of different industries. So I've worked in critical infrastructure, financial services, um, before coming along to to Talos, which has been great so far. Craig, Craig, did you tell him this was like a serious podcast or something? Because that was like a really professional introduction. I was just waiting for that so far. Like, what does he think is going to happen on the call? Like, I don't... <laughs> so, Edmund, it's great to have you with us today. Uh, we want to jump into a couple big things that, that we have released this week. Uh, one of the biggest ones is, is a huge research paper that Paul and Warren put out on Rockrat. And Matt, you want to talk a little bit about some development with Microsoft Equation Editor. Yeah. So for those of you who have been longtime listeners of the blog, we've talked about Rockrat before. You know, Rockrat is basically... I love uh, our blog listeners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our uh, our um, group one, two, three targeting South Korea, right? And so what we published was basically a write-up of all the different campaigns that we've observed this year, targeting them, and how each little piece worked. And what I think is really fascinating about this is the fact that it's pretty consistent, right? Just about every two months, there's a new campaign. Uh, and so while we were publishing this, we went through each campaign and published all the pieces of the campaign, how it worked, how to defend against it, you know, the, the way that they targeted Hangul to target the users in the region and all that interesting stuff. But the one underlying theme with every single reporter or user that we talked to was who's behind it, which country. And I, I think mm -hmm. it's really interesting that that's people's number one takeaway because 
every time someone says that, I just wonder, why is that your primary concern? You know, I, I don't know if it's, you know, the, like the, the TV aspect, if you want to have somebody pointing at it and saying, this country did it, let's bomb them. Because the reality is, you know, I, I can't get Chuck to buy us a battleship. You know, I, I've sent the request up the chain every time. And I don't know if it's with Chinsky or Marty or, or David, but every time no battleship happens. And so until that happens, I'm not super concerned about which country's behind it. What I'm concerned about is can I follow their techniques? Can I figure out how they're doing it? Can I figure out what they like to do, how they like to encode things? What does that encoder look like? Are there any repeated functions? Are there anything in the build system that's repeated so that I can track that actor reliably? But universally, that's never people's question. It's always which country did it. So I don't know. I I thought we could just talk a little bit about that because I'm curious your thoughts on it, why you think people do that or why do companies do that? When the reality is at the end of the day, that doesn't help you at all. I mean, it's human nature to who did it. Right. But I think uh, along with the who um, should come along with, well, what are they going to do next? Right. And right. what are they going to target next? And that's why I think who is often uh, very important. Can you um, replace can you replace who with why and have the same effect? I think why is a much more valid point. Right. Or even even if you mean who is in the group and not who is in the country. Right. Because Nigel's points are completely valid. I want to know what group one, two, three wants. I want to know how they operate. And I want to know why do we think they're doing it? Like what's their primary motivation? Is it money? Is it intellectual property? Is it like damaging a uh, company's ability to operate? Right. And it's the re- the reason I asked the question like Matt and, and I, I know Matt and Nigel and I have sat in rooms and we've talked about, does this matter to the vast majority of people, right? And, and like Nigel just said, like to a certain group, to a certain amount of people, yes, it certainly matters. It matters to us because then we can start trying to form a pattern and predict what's going to happen next. Uh, you know, d- does it matter to the government? Sure, because then, you know, for, for literally the same reason, but for a bunch of more. Well, but the, but the government has to, a battleship, right? Like, so. <laughs> to, to, ju- to Bill's uh, uh, Federal Credit Union, does it matter that it was North Korea? Does attribution matter to to those vast majority of the people, the people that are just like, I just want to be protected from the bad guy? Does attribution matter to them? So uh, I, it, it might be interesting to, to think of this from a different perspective, right? So a lot of organizations will apply different sets of uh, security controls based on the origination point of a connection, particularly in their perimeter, right? So we talk about like geolocational based um, blocking it, let's say a firewall or a WAF layer of countries you either don't do business with or maybe more scrutiny you want to put on traffic from country A versus country B. That may be one of the reasons why people are interested in a specific geographic region. Yeah, but I think most of the time when we see these, they're not attacking from like their home IP base, right? Like they're tunneling through some victim that they compromised in some other country. It wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice if they, if they all were required to attack only from their, <laughs> from their home soil? Um, so I, I, it, there's a couple of pieces here. Um, that, that probably should be brought up. One is humans love a complete story. And um, we've always been really good in the security community of telling a story up to the attribution piece, right? And if you don't give that attribution piece, you kind of leave them, leave the, the, the person listening to your story, whether it's over the blog or via threat intelligence reports or any kind of other analysis, you leave them hanging. And so you leave them asking this question. And, and we don't engage in nation-state attribution or anything for a couple of reasons. But one is it's very difficult nowadays to make pure attribution based only on um, technical indicators. Uh, they're easily copied. And, and I think that having some of the firmest, some of the firmest attribution that we've seen uh, coming out of governments in various places um, appear to be backed by signals intelligence and other intelligence pieces. Like it's not just what well, we analyze the malware and we've decided it's the country. It's there's additional intelligence going on into this. And so there's, there's a, a question as to whether, um, whether private sector is the right place to do attribution. I know that uh, uh, Sasha Romanowski uh, was writing for um, lawfare blog and, and had some, some different thoughts on it that you might want to check out. He's a, with the Rand Corporation, and, and basically it's having, having watched both governments and private sectors do it, it's important to understand that 
Um, those two, those are two very different pieces, and it really does revolve around what Craig said. And and in our show notes today, my notes in this section were were essentially, you know, do you have a missile frigate? No, then shut up, because nation state attribution is really about what the next step is at a political level to influence that regime's actions. Um, how do you how mm-hmm. do you bring them into uh, geopolitical norms and have them behave in a way that is supportive of, of some kind of cyber peace. And, and private organizations don't get into that. So you'll think about the kind of organizations that attribute and why do they attribute a lot of attribution inside of private sector is about advertising and about marketing. It's not about informing the, the end user. It's about positioning yourself as someone who is an expertise in a place. It does most it does most defenders no good to know that a certain actor is associated with a certain country. It's incredibly important to track by actor. So these the fact that we're tracking this this actor one twenty three and their 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 events over time is important because you can start to profile that actor's behavior. But it doesn't it doesn't change your defensive measures knowing that that actor is from Canada. <laughs> With their, with their right. all not in English interface. You know, I think the other thing that I think affects the private sector too is that it's really easy to leave false flags, right? And yeah. if you're not looking for your indicators, realizing that they might be fake, it's really easy to misattribute something. And so I know when we look at things and we associate them with a group, we're very careful to always look for those. But if you're a smaller company and your goal is simply to get clicks, those false flags are going to look really tempting because they look like the answer you want. And so that's why I think it's very important that people look at who's reporting attribution, think about are they really trustworthy, and then use that data to make your decisions. <laughs> I say, what do you mean by those false flags, Craig? Like, I mean, I, we see like timestamps or language or, you know, what do you mean by no, that? No, say I'm a bad guy, right? Uh, and as a bad guy, I would really you like are a bad guy. <laughs> I would really like people to not Person hunt for me. Firefighter. <laughs> and so I would go grab uh, somebody else's loader and use that to load my malware payload so that if a small company or a company in a hurry looked at it, they would say, oh, this isn't Craig's APT. This is, you know, Mitch's APT because we've already looked at Mitch's loader before and therefore we think Mitch did it. And meanwhile, I get off scot-free because I stole some code from him and used it without permission. And, and that's what bad guys do. We've seen that. We've seen reports of countries doing that. So it's very important that when you look at these type of things, you make sure that everything lines up and not just one or two little uh, flags. Right. Yeah. It's, it's what, what, I mean, you and Matt both said the same thing It's basically like, uh, you know, you can't look at one indicator. You have to look at a whole bunch of them, but like, I, I hate when people say, Oh, this IP was the same IP used in this attack. And that was North Korea. So this must be North Korea. I'm like, you guys understand that like traffic can come from anywhere. It has absolutely nothing to do with IPs. You know, it's, you know, and it may not be accurate in the first place. You know, it's, it's, uh, it could be a proxy. It could be a VPS. It could be any, you know, any n- amount of things that just relying on an IP solely is just ridiculous. I think, I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's kind of interesting from a theory perspective, um, how quick private sector companies are to do attribution, um, and how slow, um, governments are and, and, how careful they are in their attribution, and you should think a about. Point. You should think about the fact that it it it, it costs companies nothing to be wrong, um, but when they make those attributions and when the press takes it, and then they run to Rob Joyce and be like, "Well, this company says that uh, this country did this. What are you going to do about it?" You're applying pressure, you know, at the at the national level and at a political level to 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 have a a federal response or a government response. And you'd better, when you're making your attributions, you better seriously think about the impact of you publicly stating that someone is something. Uh, and you better be a hundred percent correct, or you'd better really put into your notes, you know, we're, we're not certain here is evidence one way or the other. I think someone that did this actually relatively well, um, during, um, Wanna cry? I think was I think it was Wanna cry. It was some of Kaspersky's early analysis where they were like, "Look, there's we understand that this is not definitive, but there's some overlapping code between this this uh, I believe they, they had some North Korean actor and and what we're seeing in Wanna cry, and we just want to call that out." And they were was they that were, the one with the base sixty four encoder? I think maybe I think maybe 
Um, I don't, I don't have a, the, my notes in front of me, but you, uh, when you're, it, if you're out there and you're, and you're making statements about who is behind what, you, when you just need to be aware that the impact of you making those statements. And I think to a large extent, why you're making those statements for the most part, it's not for the public good, but it's really a marketing message. Well, for something that we were going to talk about real quick before we got into equation editor, we spent a good <laughs> little bit of time on this. <laughs> Um, so Matt, you were talking this week when we did our uh, weekly call to talk about what we were going to talk about. Uh, you mentioned equation editor, Microsoft equation editor, and they, yeah. there's been some interesting stuff over the last couple of months here where they perform some interesting patching techniques and now there's some more news. Do you want to chat about that a little bit? Yeah. And we may, we may have, we may have briefly mentioned this before, but I'd, I'd like to dig into it a little bit. Um, so back in November on the 14th in 2017, uh, Microsoft released a notification for CVE 2017-11882. And basically, it's a remote code execution that exists in the equation editor. And it kind of went, um, not a lot of people made any notes about it. It was seen in the wild, so so you want to make sure that you've applied this patch just to, you know from the defensive side. But a shout out to um, the Zero Patch blog, and, and I will put the link to the blog in their notes. Um, uh, I came across this uh, one day, and their blog post was, did Microsoft just manually patch their equation editor executable? Why, yes, yes, they did, um, is the name of the blog post. And I, I don't know why this appeals to me. Like, there's some, there's some talent that happened here that I don't think, I don't think would ever get out and be celebrated, but Somebody did at Microsoft some pretty damn good work um, on, on patching Equation Editor. So, so some, some notes about Equation Editor. If you look at the properties for Equation Editor, it'll say copyright, design science incorporated 1990 to 2000. So it's an older piece of software. And it's, <laughs> Just not, a little bit. and it's not owned by Microsoft, which may explain why it had to be patched by hand. And so for those of you... I know we have a, a big kind of uh, spread in terms of, of understanding of various pieces of solution security. So let me kind of step through kind of how software is created. You, you, you write your source code. Um, in the case, this will, be, this will be a compiled code. So you write your source code, and you run it through a compiler, and it'll output an executable. And when that executable outputs, the compiler will actually put some metadata about what libraries were loaded, what order they were, what date was compiled, um, the executable will be signed, et cetera. Um, and, and every time you, particularly in C++, every time you compile something, when you change things, the output, quite frankly, will look radically different because of some optimizations and some decisions by the compiler that will change. And what, what the zero block, patch blocks guy did, notice that the, after the patch, there were no changes to the compilation date, and there weren't any major changes to where in memory various pieces were mapped, and and some other indicators that this patch had not been compiled. And so, for those who don't know, the compiled code is just a list of hexadecimal digits that basically represent one of three things. It'll either be machine code that instructs the processor on what to do. Uh, memory locations to tell the processor where to do things or data to tell the processor what to do the operations on. And that's it. That's all the things that make up the program. And what's amazing, and I'm trying to figure out a way to express how impressive this is. There was a problem in some copying of data inside the program. And I'm looking at the, the patch versions of this. And somebody had to go in and take the machine code and the arguments to that machine code and wedge in a test to see if there's a null, null present to test to see if there was a, if you'd reached the end of the buffer space. And if you'd reached the end of the buffer and you were done copying, to write a zero in case there wasn't one. And to do that, they had to wedge in an additional argument to this function. And it's a really nifty piece of work. And somehow what they've managed to do is they've managed to patch this function. And not only do they patch it, they optimize the function to the point where the patch function with all this additional checks and writing is smaller than the original function. This sounds like it, somebody who really knows what they're doing. 
Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. There's there's an RE at Microsoft. You know, I don't know who you are, sir or ma'am, but you did a pretty fantastic job with this. <laughs> and the re- I think one of the reasons this appeals to me, and Nigel, I, you, I think you may be the only person that remembers this. Back when we were with the Sourcefire VRT, um, the very first time Adobe really got messed up by a vulnerability was the JBIG2 vulnerability. And this was before Adobe had really gotten its act together in terms of how to react to security um, uh, vulnerability announcements. And it was an O-Day. It wasn't like they had got disclosed to. Like There was an attack in the wild that they had to respond to. And it took longer than you would want for a patch to come out uh, for Adobe on this. And at some point, um, another very talented reverse engineer named Lorraine, who used to work for, for VRT, uh, published a hand-patched version of the Adobe Reader DLL that fixed the JBIG2 Vuln. Over the weekend. Yeah. And yeah. not... Wow. I, yeah. Not everybody in the world was happy with that. And I think we eventually had to pull it down. Um, I think yeah. we got some letters. <laughs> oh yeah. They, they, um, well, they kind of contacted I, us and, and, you know, uh, requested that we don't do that. Yeah. They use a, an intellectual <laughs> property issue. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's fine. But I think that may be why this appeals to me, but it wasn't just this function they had to fix. And they had to go back to every place where there was a function that called this function and add a push instruction to push the size of the buffer that you were copying to. And so there's places all over the executable where they had to go in, optimize the code to shrink it down. Because if I haven't made this clear, I guess I may skip this point. When you're modifying this code, it is sometimes doing jumps as an offset from where you are. So you have to be incredibly careful about how big your functions are. They could never make the functions bigger, for example, because they'd overwrite other functions. Yep. They could only be the exact same size or smaller. And they had to go let me, in let me and throw out, let me throw out an analogy to help try and explain it to the layperson. Yes. You do it. So, you know, imagine, you know, you pop the hood on your car and all of a sudden, you know, you realize that let's say the air conditioner is broken. You know, you've got to somehow fix the air conditioner, but you can't make the engine compartment bigger. You can't really run new hoses. You can take the old hoses and hook them up to your whatever is going to fix it. And so in this limited amount of space with no extra resources, you've not only got to cram in an air conditioner, but fix whatever the problem was. And so that's really why this is so impressive is that without the source code, they were able to figure out how everything worked. They were able to redesign it more efficiently than before. They were able to save space and then go back to every single connection that needed to connect to the air conditioner and make sure that they all fit and worked. Well, to to be more clear about that, you have to shove in an entirely different air conditioning system right. in the same space. Can't be the same one. Has to be that size or smaller, but work just as well. Yeah. So, so quite so, quite impressive. Yeah. That so that was in November, and um, a real quick piece. So this CV announcement from Microsoft had um, one acknowledgement. Um, it, it acknowledged uh, Dennis Selenian from Invedi, and so to let. To, to kind of to pile on a theme that we've had going through the podcast, once there's blood in the water on something, mm-hmm. it, it, everybody's going to look at it. So in January, in January, Microsoft released a new CVE, uh, CVE 2018-0802, and it was for the equation editor. And this one CVE, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13... <laughs> Looks like has 13 acknowledgments um, of people that that reported this issue to Microsoft. And unfortunately, for, for all the work that whoever this talented person at, at, at Microsoft is, and, and we celebrate him or her, Microsoft's response at this point has just been to pull the equation editor entirely from the Office suite. And there is now <laughs> no longer an equation editor in the Office suite. So that's unfortunate. But uh, I just wanted to highlight just like this kind of interesting little piece of patching yeah. that happened um, over the last couple of months and some of the things that um, Microsoft has done and highlight that this attack, these attacks that we're seeing um, are in the wild. So you want to make sure that you're applying your patches. Well, I can't I can't imagine that I can't imagine that the equation editor was heavily used and heavily logged. <laughs> yes. Right. That couldn't have been like a daily day in and day out. Plus, there's other software that does that function. I mean, it made it 20 yeah, years almost. I think that's pretty good for software. I tell you, having used the equation editor, 
That thing needed to be rewritten anyway. <laughs> what a pain in the ass. But yeah, you're, you're probably, it's mostly, it's mostly people in school. I think that's where I used it. Um, when I was, when I was, I would guess that probably, uh, you know, Microsoft, you know, have the information that they need to know how many people or what percentage of users actually do use that. You know, if you turn on there's functions, you can turn on within office suite to let them have statistics on things. I'm guessing part of that is, you know, which pieces you're actually using, how long you use it for or stuff like that. And maybe, Equation editor was at that point where they're like, oh, you know what? We've got like one dude in North Dakota who uses it probably <laughs> once every six months for about 30 seconds. We don't know why. So, uh, uh, <laughs> we don't know why. You know, we have no understanding why they yeah. use it. We're not sure why. So, uh, you know, let's just remove it. It's not worth it. He uses it. He's the last guy that has refused to switch to Mathematica. Like, <laughs> so we have Mystery Man over at Microsoft. We've had, you know, hand patching this and, and we had some of our own folks hand patching some, some Adobe phones. And I mean, those are pretty amazing beats. And that kind of helps to lead into the next thing we want to talk about, you know, the cream of the crop, the best of the best in your security team. Joel, uh, you want to give us a little bit about like what kind of spurred you to, to really want to talk about this topic? And Oops, sorry, I can, this came out of a, a conference that I attended this week, which is um, the AFCA Certs 2018 conference down in Augusta, Georgia. And yeah, there you go. All needs another Augusta, Georgia. I told plug. you you're down there um, all the time. You didn't believe me. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> For those of you that don't know, that's where Cyber Command is relocating, relocated. So I could see probably... Um, more trips to that location for several cyber command. So how many cyborgs did you see? <laughs> all of them. <laughs> they all got your name so on the their minds, conference. Craig. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it was, kind of, it was cool to see uh, what, what this conference does is it brings together, you know, industry and it brings together military, it brings together government in the same room. And it kind of allows all of those people to kind of, you know, discuss and interface and, and talk about their problems. Right. So with a lot of the cyber training having been relocated down to Fort Gordon, which is in Augusta, Georgia, um, not too long ago, there was a lot of people there. And, and it was interesting for me. It was just interesting to walk into that space and see. And, but it wasn't just Army. It was Army. It was Air Force. It was Marines. It was Navy. It was you know Coast Guard. They were all in the same room. Um, and one of the, the, the topic that was, that was very heavily discussed is that everybody can get to a certain baseline. This is kind of the point that I made on the panel that I was on, right? Everybody can get to a certain baseline. We can, we can send people to a class and we can get everybody like, you know, these basic skills of this is what IPS is, this, and this is what AV is, and this is how you review that data, et cetera, et cetera. And that stuff is able to be metric, right? You can measure them on a test. So, um, there's a certain level of which we can probably get everybody who graduates from that program um, to and, and, and allows people to kind of, you know, this is your entry level person, just like any other job in the military. Right. So how do out of that 500 of people that you graduate from that school, how do you identify the three people that are the cream of the crop? How do you do that? I mean, you know, personally for me, you know, all the, all the prerequisites, right? Like you have to have the background knowledge. You have to have basic knowledge, blah, blah, blah. But for me, the way you find that top 1% is you look for the people who are passionate about it, right? Who goes home and still looks into stuff for the fun of it? Who has a side project that's actually incredibly successful, right? Who has taken time to actually make this something that they want to do for fun and not treat it like a chore? Because those are going to be the people who are the most successful. Well, I think I think finding those is is the easy part. Um, I think for us, it's more not just finding people who are smart and, and enjoy what they're doing, but it's also about finding the people who fit correctly into the team that you have. You don't. You can right. hire the smartest yeah, person the in, in, in the room, yeah. um, but you know if it's a complete, you know not somebody that you would like very much, he's not going to fit very well with the team and you could end up destroying the rest of your team with it, right? So, you know, you have to look at that too 
um, you know, it's more than just what you know and what you like to do and whatever. It's a case of your attitude in general. You know, are you someone who not only likes to learn new things, but are you willing to share your knowledge with other people? Are you that kind of a person? I think is also extremely important. Really, I'm really glad you brought that up because I see a lot of people especially, you know, during interviews who don't seem to understand that and they don't understand the value of teamwork. You know, I, I remember one time I was interviewing someone who was, you know, relatively qualified and I asked them for, uh, you know, give me an example of something you find difficult. And their example was basically functioning on a team, you know, like poor choice. <laughs> when you, when we look at, we get 300 resumes, say you know, those 300 and they're from a diverse background. And this is something that I would kind of argue with Craig when, when Craig made a point of like, yeah, you got to have the background. But if we would have only judged people that we've hired based upon your, and I'm not saying that you said this, Craig, but I'm just, I'm just making a point. If we would have judged people based upon their degrees or their certifications or their background, we would have probably missed out on some of our best hires. Some of our best hires that we've brought into Talos or to VRT back in the day were people that didn't have, you know, degrees in computer science or electrical engineering or anything like that, right? Oh, we have, I, I completely we have agree that with have, that. Yeah, we have people that have a background in, in, in uh, uh, you know, astronomy. We have people that have backgrounds in physics, right? Well, yeah, so I mean, we had, how do we you had, identify we that, had that huge fight on the, on the, I don't know, fight, but a big discussion between me and Nigel and some of the junior managers on the email list. I think it was last year, right, Nigel, yeah. um, where mm-hmm. a, a candidate had come in and it was a candidate with a strong academic background. And for those of you who haven't received resumes from academic candidates, it's going to look different to you than a candidate from the industry. There'll be a lot more papers, a lot more conferences. It'll, it'll look weird and it'll look over, over stuff. Yeah. And that's just the They're way academic things right. are. Yeah. And so there was a huge discussion um, between some of the junior managers and us about who we were looking for and why we were talking to this guy. And I think he, I think, I think the candidate had um, was either a master's or doctorate in physics. And, and at one point I came back and I said, I would hire, I would hire a doctorate in physics before I hired a doctorate in computer science. Yeah. Because, and, and the deal, it has to do with what this particular organization does. And, and so if you have a degree in physics, whether in not just doctor, it would be true for, for comparing bachelor's to bachelor's, master's, master, whatever. Um, people in physics are trained to solve problems and approach problems in a particular way. And, and I've consistently seen them with better math skills, better problem solving skills, better analytic skills the kind of kind of cynical, not trusting the first blush of data kind of approach that you need to have in an analyst mm-hmm. coming out of, of those groups. And so when, while I would agree with Craig's general statement that you need to have the background, I think you need to be very careful in how you define that background. You, you need to find people. And again, we're, we're a specialized environment. Unique. Yeah. yeah it's a unique environment, but we need inquisitive, um, problem solvers, people that will ratchet together solutions that, you know, you wouldn't put in production, but that will demonstrate that there's a way to solve a particular issue that will chew on a problem for a while and not give up because it's kind of hard or will find innovative solutions. And that's hard to interview for. But when you find those people that you have to save that person from anything else in the enterprise and, and, to to my main thought based on what you on your original statement was about um the military finding the gems in in this group of 300 um the main problem that i see having 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 had some government and military people come on board from from those jobs is not necessarily the government's ability to identify those people, but those government's ability to retain those people and to, to build an environment where they want to stay. And I think that's probably actually the right. biggest thing because the people that we have coming on board from military and government positions, it is abundantly clear, not just to us, but also to their managers at the government, that they are the stars and the creams of the crop from these places. But they can't. Yeah. They can't. Yes, I can think of one example in particular right? recently. Exactly. Yeah. Um, right. And we've heard about it. Um, but. Mm-hmm. 
and it's not like we went after these people specifically, but they made the decision to come to us and, and look for, for a position away from government um, and public sector positions. And the, that's the biggest challenge right now is how do you, how do you save these people inside of those organizations? And it's, it's not just the government. I, I'll, I don't know. I don't want to say a lot about this idea, but Cisco's a big company and big companies have a certain kind of flavor to them that isn't everybody's taste. Um, and so mm-hmm. we consciously managers who, who report to the vice president of Talos spend conscious time thinking about how to build a small, comfortable environment inside of this larger organization to, so that people who don't like the larger, larger organization feel are still comfortable working inside of Talos. And so you right. have to really understand not just finding the person, but be realistic with yourself about the environment you're working in as a manager and figure out how to build a space within that environment that satisfies the needs and the comfort desires of the people that you're trying to hire. And this, this gets into, you know, a maturity point. Cause I mean, my views on this have changed a little bit over time, but to do defense well, which is something that you would hope that your government and your military is able to do. It is not something that can be solved purely by process, right? You have got to be able, it is, it is a creative endeavor because you have to be able to kind of get a sense of the environment. You have to kind of internalize it. You have to kind of build little scripts to test ideas. If you're hunting, you have to try to think like the, the attacker, try to understand what their intentions are, how they would approach it. You have to be honest and, but you have to be a bit devious and, and you, what we've built at Talos is a pretty incredible kind of diversity of, of people in terms of how they think. And we have some people who are very process driven and that is incredibly important in that we're hitting our marks and that we are consistent in how we present things and that our customers understand what, what we're going to do and we do it and we live up to those expectations. But we also have people that are different and not the same as other human beings and, right, and right. their <laughs> contributions in terms of the ability to turn an idea on its head and look at something in a different way and then kind of whip up a solution out of nowhere. And it literally just happened today. Um, it's invaluable and you have to build a safe place for people to be able to work like that. You have to have a place where, and you know, there was a mistake made yesterday by one of my guys and and it was unfortunate and and it caused some problems, but we're not crushing him. He has a safe place to make decisions and try things and fail. And Mm -hmm. all of these things that we're talking about in terms of flexibility and, and, you know, not a complete adhesion to, to protocol and procedure are not things that you readily think about when you're thinking about government and military organizations. And I think that core piece is the challenge that I, I don't know how to help them fix. When, when you talk to anybody in the government, you talk to anybody in the military, they always want to recommend a book, right? <laughs> anybody that's ever dealt with the military or the government knows that like, oh, you should read this leadership book or you should read this leadership book. There's a book that I would encourage uh, people to read, and I don't know if any of and the people on this podcast have read it, but it's a book called Creativity, Inc. by Ed Catmull. And if you don't know who Ed Catmull is, he's the president of Pixar. Um, and he worked very, you know, works very closely with John Lasseter. He worked very closely with Steve Jobs during, during the, the Pixar buyout. But he's been at Pixar since uh, Pixar was part of Lucasfilm. Um, and he talks about how to encourage creativity and free thought. And it's a really, really good uh, book about um, not only creativity, but managing creatives. And really in this job, everybody's a creative. You kind of have to be, you have to be able to think outside the box. You have to be able to invent, you have to be able to create. And it's, a, I just, if you really want a, a book to, that kind of flips leadership on its head, as far as that's concerned for military people, <laughs> I understand how they think it's very regimented, right? But read that book and, and then you know, reflect. Oh, sorry, Edmund. We're out of time. We'll have to wrap yeah. this up. Yeah. We're going to have to bring you back <laughs> thanks next for, week. Thanks for coming on, but we're totally, well, thanks Matt Damon. Really we appreciate it. We ran out of time. <laughs> 
So, Edmund, you've you've done some work, um, you know, in some government related areas or government, you know, related entities and and utilities and and all kinds of different stuff. Um, yeah, what made you hate it and quit? <laughs> not how I was going to put it, but um, as compared to like a Talos or a yeah, research yeah. organization. Uh, yeah, I think one of the the biggest things is, um, and one of the reasons that kind of drew me away from you know working as a, a part of a security team for like a dedicated organization is that um, you, you know I got kind of tired of having um, my workload being dictated by specific uh, set of circumstances. Like you go into work one day and it's like, oh well, our content filter or web proxy isn't allowing connections to this website. Go fix it, right? We're getting called in the middle of the night because uh, there's an issue with an IPS sensor. Or, you know, some of the more maintenance and management uh, tasks that, you know, as a security engineer, you're, you're constantly dealing with. Um, and, and, and I like the freedom to kind of pursue, you know, what I'm really interested in from a security standpoint. So as was kind of mentioned earlier, the things that I, I was doing after work at home, you know, the types of projects and, and research that I was doing. And, and that was available with Talos. And that, that was really the, the main driver for me kind of coming over and, and joining the team was that it allowed me to pursue those things specifically that I, that I was really interested in from a, from a security research standpoint. And this is something you really wanted to talk about today, Edmund. Um, you know, a lot of that, when you're focused on the management, when you're focused on the upkeep and care and feeding of, of security systems, you don't have a lot of thing, time to do things like threat modeling and the things that you're passionate about. Uh, and that's what you kind of wanted to come on and talk about today. So I want to, maybe we'll start with you on threat modeling and, and why people suck at it. And we'll then kind of go around, everybody else can contribute their thoughts and opinions there. Sure. Um, so, so what really kind of uh, spurred me to, to want to really talk about threat modeling in general is because of some of the more uh, hyped up and in high profile security vulnerabilities that have been discovered and, and released over the past 12 months or so. Uh, one of the things that I guess I get the impression of when, when I see a lot of the discussion and I get asked you know, a lot of questions about these vulnerabilities, it seems like in a lot of cases, even if you have an organization where you know they're really good at threat modeling, identifying you know what their likely attackers or uh, adversaries would be, why those attackers would try to target the organization, what their mission objectives would be, and then how they would achieve those mission objectives. You know, I feel like when these these sorts of high profile vulnerabilities come out, everyone runs around with their hair on fire and completely throws their actual threat model out the window when they're trying to determine you know how to uh, allocate resources to address these sorts of issues, what the potential impacts are and if they're even relevant within the context of their specific uh, threat model. So if you're not familiar with, with threat modeling, right, the, the general idea here is that you take kind of an adversarial view of your, your own organization or your own environment, uh, whereby you, you look at yourself from the perspective of what a potential attacker might. And this allows you to identify, you know, who would really be interested in attacking my organization uh, in general. And, and the term likely is really important there because there's any number of potential possibilities, but who are the most likely candidates that would attempt to you know, compromise systems within your organization? And you identify why they would want to even do that. What are, what are they looking for? What's their mission objective? And then you analyze how they might be able to potentially achieve that objective. And by doing this sort of an exercise, you, know, you can really identify potential weaknesses or areas you need to improve within your organization and you can use that to identify where you need to allocate additional resources, right? Do you need to hire more folks? Do you need to have folks trained on specific things? Uh, and it also fuels future budget forecasts, right? You can well, start let's, to let's, let's, let's slow down for a second and give them an example, right? Sure. So, you know, what, what Edmund is saying makes perfect sense. So, you know, let's go back to some of the examples from this year, right? Let's look at uh, NetYen and CCleaner, right? Both cases where relatively small software shops had software on a huge number of machines, you know, if you're a user or you're a sysadmin and you're building your threat model, you should probably say, hey, look, we've got this uh, weird little piece of tax software called ME-Doc. Maybe we should audit it or at least segment it off until somebody does, right? And, and the same thing for CCleaner. These are things where people should have looked at it and said, you know what, that could be susceptible to a supply chain attack. Why don't we, you know, wall that off from everything important? That's, that's a good point because when you're, you know, going through this sort of an exercise, it really allows an organization to identify, you know, what are our high value assets? What are the things that an attacker would likely want to get from us to achieve their mission objective? And then you can start to build security controls around those things so that, you know, things like segmentation don't allow a single endpoint in your environment to result in a compromise of your high value asset as a result. Um, so I just wanted to kind of bring that up and, and kind of start some discussion around that, um, you, you know, especially as it pertains to you know, these high impact vulnerabilities like your your 
your specter meltdown. meltdown. Yeah. And, and kind of how it seems like, at least from my perspective, that a lot of organizations, they'll, you know, always talk about threat modeling, but the second something like this is disclosed, they automatically over-prioritize or allocate a significant number of resources when it may not be the most likely way an attacker is going to target you to, you know, compromise your high-value assets. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great point, right? Like, so let's let's give an example, right? If you're a, you know, point-of-sale systems, like you're a store with a, you know, cash register that has credit cards in memory, what do you think is more likely, right? Are they going to try and use Spectre or Meltdown or do you think they're just going to try and get a Trojan in by a keylogger through some sort of drive-by download attack? Right. I, I would say the drive-by download vector would be hundreds of times more likely. Right, right. And, and also, um, by, the, by the same token, if you, know, you are an organization and you feel like you are heavily impacted and, and you might have a compromise of your high-value assets because of one of these specific vulnerabilities, and that's all an attacker would need to completely compromise your environment and gain access to that high-value asset— you know, you need to really start to look at how you're improving your threat model over time or decreasing your your risk uh, for that high value asset such that, you know, even if a vulnerability is disclosed, it wouldn't necessarily result in a complete compromise of your entire organization. Well, how can you somebody take that many branches in a thought process? I mean, every single piece of software <laughs> that we have running in a given environment. They need phantom trains running down the track. <laughs> <laughs> phantom trolleys. Got it. I mean, how do you prioritize, you know, what's going to well, like, I mean, that's, that's what this, that's what this process does. So if you go back, you know, if you go back 10, 15 years ago and you think about how security was approached by a defender, it was about, I'm going to, I'm going to set up my firewall. I'm going to uh, put my virus antivirus software on. Um, I might run an IDS or an ITS and I'm going to patch my things. And that's my approach to security. Um, and there was never, there wasn't a lot of thought about how the attacker views your network, how the attacker would conduct um, herself across um, multiple stages of the attack. And it was very much perimeter focused. And then for a while, we went through a phase where we were always like, oh, well, it's all soft and gooey on the inside, and that's a problem. But there wasn't a lot of discussion about how to fix that. And this is part of the solution to it. Um, we're, I don't know how much you get into this. We're doing some work with some partners and where that are, that are fairly important. And we're having discussions about how different things work in their environment and what attackers would be interested in what, not just what they would be interested in, but specifically what is the attacker's intent and how do they achieve that goal while they're on your network? And when you turn it on its head like that, and you start working backwards from, from what they're trying to achieve and what they're going to go after in your network, those priorities will pop up over things. And, and a lot of organizations, particularly smaller organizations, have never spent any time thinking about the attacker. They're so overwhelmed in terms of we only have X number of people, we only have X amount of money, but they're so overwhelmed by just trying to keep up with patching and, and understanding what's going on and who the attackers are that they don't have time to go, what, if, if I had a nation state actor after me, what would they go after and how would they do it and what are, they, what are their intents and what do I really, 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 really have to lock down? And this process of thinking like that then helps you build your priority list in terms of training, in terms of hiring, in terms of technology, in terms of rearchitecture. Um, that's 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 the critical piece of this. And and at this point, there's so many options from a technology and hiring and and security perspective that you really do need to think stop for a while and think about what exactly is the most likely attack scenario. And not just attack in terms of initial attack, but behavior after the attack and how you detect that post-compromise behavior and how you invest in technologies that allow you to do that. We spend a lot of time on my team going to organizations where we have to go from no understanding of that organization to understanding if they're compromised. And we lead not with detection systems, but with visibility systems. We lead with Umbrella and FireAmp and StealthWatch because those pieces while FireAmp definitely is a detection technology, it also has an incredible amount of telemetry. And it allows us to then understand what's going on in a network and it helps us identify where people would go after, what are critical pieces, what are key parts of the business practices of that organization that the attacker will understand. And that's why this process is so important. 
Yeah, I mean, exactly. Um, and, and one of the other, you know, natural byproducts of this of this sort of a process is that you don't have to treat every single vulnerability with a logo and a fancy name as if it's a huge fire you have to put out immediately <laughs> based on how it impacts your organization. It'll, it gives you time. You're not running around from, you know, acorn to acorn like a squirrel. Um, and it allows you to take a more systematic approach when you're even analyzing how concerned you should be with a vulnerability. When you see these announcements come out, you know, like I, I love how Matt put it last week, uh, you know, when, when somebody comes out and says everything electronic is vulnerable, sure, <laughs> you, you get to panic a little bit. But I think, you know, it's all bad. <laughs> normally when you hear these type of headlines and when you see these type of things, you've got to ask yourself, is it really that bad? Well, what if it has two well, logos? <laughs> or even its own domains? Yeah. Right? Oh, <laughs> thank you for reminding me. <laughs> So we had Meltdown and Spectry. <laughs> now, if you guys haven't noticed, uh, I saw it fly across my Twitter. There is now a Solus and a Skyfall. Ooh, Skyfall. They oh, have wow. not disclosed them yet. They've reported them to the chip vendors, but they have not disclosed them yet. They have their own domains and they have their own websites. So, and I mean, and I'm just go buy another chip. real. God. Another uh, real. I think, so what I, I think what I'd like to say, I do have something to say about this. To the people that went out and I'm shocked. You have something to say about this? These guys with your <laughs> with your domains and your pre set up bullshit and your we got something and we're gonna generate hype before you even know about it and spinning everybody up. You know what? Oh my god! Calm I'm the hell down. Hype, a threat hype generator. It gives you a logo. Jesus. It gives you a domain every time you just name it. <laughs> oh my god! Good idea. We're going to blockchain technology. Do something useful. <laughs> Solace and Skyfall. So, anyway, so whatever Solace and Skyfall on, is, they've I been reported Matt. to the chip vendors uh, and we're all panicked out. I could give so a shit. My, my point on this was <laughs> correct. every time you see one of these reports, you've got to take it with a grain of salt, right? Uh, they, I'm not saying the company's being misleading, but they may be mis- you know, they may only be thinking about a certain specific scenario that applies to them. Uh, and, and likewise, if it's a smaller company, they might just be trying to get attention. So whenever you see these, before you panic, read what it is, what it affects, and what the actual uh, scenario would be to be attacked. Because if you're if that's not in your threat model, it probably doesn't apply to you. Yeah, or, or even if it is, it may be very, very low priority compared to some of the more low-hanging fruit that you've identified through the process of threat modeling. There may be other things that you should be dedicating resources, uh, personnel, and, and budget to that would have a, a better impact or a, a larger impact on you know, the protection of those high-value assets, whether those are systems, information, uh, things mm-hmm. like that. It really is. It it really is just like whatever that that internet meme was that that happened at the end of last year where there's the guy walking with the girl and he's looking back at the other girl <laughs> right listen all literally the shit that's going to get you fired right now is the same shit that would have gotten you fired in december this other stuff while yeah, it's two weeks ago while yeah. it is flashy and new and weird and complicated and kind of concerning Literally, you're still getting owned by Equation Editor and having, you know, <laughs> Stop opening open on your stuff and downloading emails. All that stuff, oh, oh, all the stuff right. that has worked passwords. for years is still the exact same shit you need to be worried about. Concentrate yeah. on that. So we do uh, want to go back around, as always, and just kind of, you know, something we didn't talk about, something that's just on do we want Do we want to let our guests go first and just hear what it's like to be nope. a guest on the show? I was, real, I was already <laughs> going there, Craig. Is he, is he already scarred emotionally? So let's uh let, let's start off with Edmund. Uh, hey, I don't know. Let's let Edmund go first. <laughs> so uh, so I'm Edmund. Go ahead. No, it's it's great. I, I'm glad y'all, y'all let me be on the uh, the podcast. I, I was looking forward to it, and uh, it was definitely a, a great time. Yeah, too bad Nick never showed up, huh? What a quitter. Yeah, you had a teammate that was supposed to be here, but he's like all like dying or something. I'm like, sick. I can't breathe. <laughs> I need oxygen. <laughs> we'll have him back on he's maybe He's probably next not time. sick. He probably just got like a new piece of coffee equipment in or something, and he's busy. Too. Well, <laughs> if he's assembling it. New cigars. Well, there's thing, I mean, Edmund hasn't yet made it past the Mitchell cutting process yet, so we might be talking to dead air right That's now. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> You know how vindictive Mitchell you know what can it is? be. Nick's probably in line at the next restaurant that's about to open here, yeah. right? It's probably had a soft open <laughs> yeah. day. So Although, you know what? Stand in line for a good eight hours, get his little eighth of a barbecue. Do you know what? Our <laughs> listeners are not even going to know for another couple of weeks anyway. It's going to take Mitchell that long to get the episode out. 
Guys, guys, <laughs> true. we recorded seven days ago, and we already have the last podcast out, so I don't want to hear that crap. I know. You did good. You know why? Because Craig didn't swear. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Joel, go ahead. I got nothing. Go ahead, Nigel. It's not me next, is it? Oh, is it? Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. We're nailing this close. Well, I mean, obviously, this week, this week, uh, the Mighty Reds have live of uh, away at Swansea on Monday, and we will again continue our victorious march onto glory. Um, I'm predicting a number of goals from the Mighty Reds, um, and then you know, obviously, what is what's but, at the end of this? Is, what's yes. is there a trophy? What's yes. the, what's Trophies the are at okay. the end of the season. Um, we also have European Champions Cup games coming up shortly. Um, where again we'll be marching along in yet another competition, victorious and glorious. We have more FA Cup games to go. There's more trophies to win. Uh, you know, it's just going to be fabulous at the end of the season. All right, uh, Craig. You know, I just wanted to thank Ebbett for coming on the show. I think something that people don't think about enough is actually looking at their threat model to understand not only what vulnerabilities are concerning for them, but which ones aren't, right? And I think every time we see a vendor overhyping a vol, it really damages everyone because the reality is people need to know the difference between when the sky is falling and when it's not. And when we have these voles that are very, very difficult to exploit, you need to preface the information with that, right? Good story. Yeah. And quit blaming Canada because it wasn't them. <laughs> Says Canada. <laughs> Generally. Generally speaking. If it was Canada, we'd never know it was Canada. <laughs> if it was Canada, they'd let us know they'd before they did it. Nice. They just apologized first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Matt, what's going on? This episode is brought to you by the Nick Biasini Memorial Data Visualization Wall. <laughs> Next time you're visiting Talos, make sure to check out this extensive collection demonstrating some of the most astonishing and innovative approaches to graphically displaying data. And remember our motto, for better or worse, here's a graph. <laughs> I'm going to need a uh, updated picture of the Nick Biasini Memorial Wall of Shame. To well, let's talk home. about that for a minute. Somebody stole what? it. What? What? Oh, I know. It's what? not where it's no. Well, I know where Who it is. Someone stole the wall. Oh. Release the hounds. It's all right. It's in safekeeping. It's in safekeeping. And she well, she well deserves the cover. She does good work. That is going to do it for us today. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss another episode of Beers with Talos whenever they come out. If you'd like to hear something on the show or talk about something you did hear, or you're just curious why Nigel's so crotchety all the time, drop us a line. Beers with Talos at Cisco.com, at Talos Security on Twitter. Thank you for dropping by and hanging out yet again. We will see you in just a couple weeks. So until then, cheers. <laughs>